welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project, starting further behind and later than usual. Hooray! Yeah, that's a, that's a recipe for success for us. Absolutely. That's how we roll. We won't, how... we won't get into why. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but uh, uh, but I will. But uh, I'll just say that one of our one of our key panelists, <clears throat> Corey Olson, Tolkien professor, uh, <laughs> might have been a little behind on his homework. You might possibly have been behind on my homework, indeed. Yeah. But it's good homework because we have a script to discuss. Yeah. Yeah. Delivered a full to us script. By our showrunners Marie and Nick, who are here with us, and I, of course, am Dave. But uh, yeah, we're talking. We're covering like all the bases. We've got uh, elves. We've got um, uh, we've got the humans, of course, and then we have some dwarves. So this is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it, and a yeah. lot of discontent. A lot of discontent. In- indeed, simmering discontent all over the place. Well, almost all over the place. There's at least one place where there is not any simmering discontent, uh, and we'll we'll see some of that too. Um, but yeah, we get uh, we get more Holith. We get to introduce uh, one of the really one of the core characters of the entire season who we've seen but um but we get andreth andreth who is really at the heart of the human story um you know emerging here in the second half of the season because of human ages and stuff um uh, and of course she's going to be a major fo- focal point through the whole second half of the season uh which is of course eventually going to be focusing on her um uh her Star-crossed romance, uh, uh, followed by philosophical discussions as we get to one of the elements of, uh, you know, one of the kind of the lesser known elements of Tolkien or or sort of pieces of writing uh, by Tolkien, but just one of my very favorites, the Athrobeth of uh, Finrod and Andreth, um, which is uh, just spectacular. And I'm so looking forward to our Athrobeth episode. Is that 10? The Athrobeth episode, essentially, the debate yeah, between them? That'll, that'll be 11. 11. Okay. Yeah. Right. 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 The Athrobeth and then Doom Falls, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah, the romance cool. will be what, episode. What nine. Doom? Whatever could you mean? <laughs> what could possibly happen? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. I just suddenly crossed my mind like, have we ended every season with some kind of like military <laughs> stroke or disaster pretty close right i mean uh there was you know uh mythros's capture the war to begin yeah, all wars the, right and then season two was the darkening of valinor the darkening of valinor right season yeah. three ca- uh capture of mythros but really yeah. the arrival of the Dolphin. So that wasn't right. necessarily a military thing. And the unfriendship of Fingolfin and Morgoth. Right, right, right. And then, of course, we had Glaurung last time. So, yeah, we have tended to end with uh, not all disasters by any stretch, but um, uh, certainly... I mean, that's how it's... That's kind of how it's done. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. We don't want to end with a quiet, dull episode. Nobody, nobody really wants that. Um, 
But of course, we have so much more uh, scope in terms of ending uh, each season with crushing tragedy moving forward that, uh, you know, we'll really be able to take our pick, uh, I think, uh, which is... Uh, pretty cool. Um, exactly, Brian. We did, in fact, get to end uh, with a literal cliffhanger in season three. So that was really good. Um, uh, even though you're not supposed to do that, I guess, at the end of or you know, whatever. But we did. Yeah. Um, so. But before we get any further in digressions and talking about what we're talking about, uh, brief announcements. Um, just a reminder about MythMoot 8 coming up uh, June 24th, 27th. Still time to sign up. It's going to be a fully hybrid event. Um, so we're going to be live in Leesburg, Virginia. And we're also, you can also join us online. Um, been having a lot of fun planning uh, the ways that we're going to... We're trying to be really as like unilaterally inclusive as possible uh, as we can be there. Um, This is not going to be one of those like, we're just doing a live event and there will be a camera in the corner and you can be like, wait, what's happening there? And I can't hear it. Um, We're going to try to be a little bit more immersive than that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we also have our Signum Clubs going on. Uh, those are our, our extracurricular programs uh, for kids, book clubs, creative writing clubs, and language clubs. Uh, really, really fun stuff. And we definitely want to invite you to our Sim Film uh, forums. They're at forums.signumuniversity.org. Um, we have several things that are going on uh, now. First, we're coming on to the final script discussion. You guys are up to episode 13. Uh, so that is... That is excellent work. Um, So on Sunday, June 6th at 7.30 p.m., that will be happening. And, of course, casting nominations uh, for uh, – you can see – go to our forums. You can see all of the roles that are open for casting. Um, Make some uh, suggestions there. We're going to close the casting uh, soon, about a week and a half at the end of May on May 31st. uh, We will close casting nominations, and then we'll be doing uh, voting. Uh, after that, so uh, uh, say stay tuned for that, but definitely want to uh, invite folks uh, to participate there. Yeah, it would be really cool to have at least three nominees per uh, per role, Stephen. So that that's uh, that would be that would be really great. Please, please help us with casting. We have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I certainly don't. This is one of the things where I am always learning most because uh, I'm pretty clueless when it comes to this stuff. Um, uh, but it's always a it's always a fun discussion. All right. Speaking of fun discussions, though, let's get back to Aeol, Maeglin, and Aradel. So this is the tail end of episode seven. Well, not the end of the episode, but the end of our discussion of the episode. Um, so uh, help me to remember. I could try to conceal that it's me who needs help and be like, let's help our viewers recall. But I like totally am the one who needs reminding. So. Um, what was the, what, remind me of the A and B plots of episode seven? Um, this was the establishment of things. Uh, uh, this was after the arrival of folks in in Brethil, right? Yeah. So the focus of episode seven is the Council of Estelad. The Council of Estelad, right? Of course. Yeah, I remember right. that. So this is Hador becoming the leader of his people, and uh, Sauron having the. Uh, fake Amlock plot going on throughout that. So that's what we discussed last time is the, the Hadar stuff and the Sauron stuff, including Amlock. And what ties into that very tangentially is that Amlock is lost in the woods of Nan Elmoth, and that's why he's not at the council. Right, which ties yes. This story okay, on. and so that's what actually connects us through so that we can continue the Maeglin, uh, Aravel, and Aeol plot line without an utter disjunction uh from the especially since it is like 
next door, right? The Council of Estelot is happening right, uh, right next door and on Elmoth. So it does make sense to, to, to uh, tie them uh, in some sense. In fact, it's even kind of more interesting, right? I mean, on one level, what's happening now, right, is something – what's happening now, like, just – down the road, right, from where they are in Nan Elmoth is something which would have been intensely interesting to Aradel, right, based on what we know, based on what we've seen from her and her storyline and her personality. Um, you know, she was all about trying to make sure that, um, uh, you know, all of, you know, the strength that could be mustered could be brought together. Um, you know, it's interesting to kind of imagine if Aradel had still been at liberty this whole time, you know, when, you know, she never really got a chance to interact with humans. She was all about like, you know, let's, you know, sort of seizing the opportunity to create new allies, to strengthen the position of the Noldor in their, uh, in their war against uh, Morgoth. And here, since she came out, you know, the humans arrive in Beleriand and all of these things are happening. Um, and yet there she is right in the middle of it, like right near the very epicenter of these discussions. And she's not even like fully aware of what's happening. Right. Um, and that I think is a really I think it's a really interesting irony. Right. I, th- I think that's that's a really powerful way to kind of draw attention to her, um, uh, her helplessness. Right. To her imprisonment. Um and and uh, you know the extent to which she's being shut away. It's it's like it's worse that it's so close, right? It's not like I mean it, it would be one thing if she were like sequestered in a tower somewhere in a distant corner of the continent, right? I mean that would create a sense of isolation and loneliness. But the the sense of um, isolation is even uh, in some ways more intense, given that she is isolated and and shut away from things. Although she's so very close and doesn't even realize it, so I kind of I kind of like that irony about bringing this story in contact uh, with the the human story at Estelad there. Um, okay, so tell me about the st- let's kind of one of the challenges of the the Aeol and um, Aravel story is the how we develop their relationship, right? How we show things changing. Because on the one hand, we wanted to have, um, we wanted this to be a more nuanced story, right? We wanted to develop the characters, both of uh, Aravel and Aeol more, um, and give their story some time and make it a little bit more complicated than just like a, you know, a rape and imprisonment story simply taken, right? Um, But of course, one of the big challenges there is that we haven't had that much screen time for their relationship. So we've had to kind of come in and give snapshots, right? Uh, essentially of the development of their relationship. So let's just kind of um, refresh where we are in that. The last time we met them before this was that scene when we were overhearing something that Aradel didn't understand, right? When we saw that, that was the first time we saw that kind of division. Where was Aradel herself in her perspective at that point? Well, up until that point, like this is the episode in which we kind of start to break the we break the trust trust mm-hmm. between Aravel and Ale. Right, she's still deceived. Though even the last time we saw her, she's mm-hmm. still not yet really realizing uh, sort of Ale's. 
I hate saying true nature. That's like way too simplistic a phrase. Like that's not, but you know, that she, she still is deceived in him basically uh, last time. Right. Um, in this episode, we wanted to, like I, like I said, break that trust. Right. One of the difficulties that we had was that was how to do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. what can he do there in Nan Elmoth that's going to break that trust? Mm-hmm. Now, she could ask to leave and he could tell her no, but that's sure. not super interesting. Like, that's just that's a scene, maybe. Right. Which, right. and we could have done it that way. But one thing that I've been realizing over, um, actually, kind of over the past few weeks is how much the Aeol and Arathel plotline stand, kind of stands out mm-hmm. in this season. Um, and part of that is in trying to maintain the surprise. For the um, for both Ale and the viewer, like in trying to maintain this the illusion that Ale can be brought over to to you know to the light, right? Right. Um, we didn't really spend a lot of time with him before. Now, you right. know, we kept saying, "Oh, well, we'll we'll ha- we'll have to include him in the next season. We'll have to include him in the next season." Yeah, we kept over the past him two off. seasons, and <laughs> yeah. that didn't happen, right? Yeah. So now we're having to make this story arc happen pretty quickly, um, and in ways that don't always line up with the tension of the episodes in which the events fall, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so in this one, we had a, a a major difficulty because we needed to make sure that she lost her trust, that that he lost her trust, right. Yes. But they can't go anywhere or really do anything. And we had talked <laughs> right. about having her witness him doing to someone else what he did to her when he she first showed up. Right. But now we have to introduce random people to show up in Nan Elmoth and we don't really care about them. And then but then we realized, oh, wait a minute. We have people moving all around, and we have Amok that we have to get out of the way. Right. We've, we've got to get rid of him somewhere. So, we yeah. have this major problem because anything that we could do that Sauron would do to get Amok out of the way, none of it's better than killing him Nothing. or putting the yeah. spell of not quite bottomless dread on him. Right. Either of those two options are better than anything that Sauron's going to do to detain him. Right. It just doesn't make sense why he gets why he would do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And sure, he could just randomly be running late, but that's not, that's not good TV. <laughs> right. Like, that's not entertaining. <laughs> right. Uh, that's just right. a thing that happens. And it just looks like we just made that up just to make the plot work. Well, and not to mention the fact that it makes Sauron look more incompetent. Right. Mm-hmm. Like yep. yeah. that he's because, you know, as far as he knows, Amlock could come stumbling in at any minute being like, sorry, guys, I'm late and run into himself. Right. So uh, Sauron needs to be have things a little more in hand than that, you'd think. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And s- stalling Amlock till Amlock's escape until the very end. Now, of course, Sauron doesn't know that Aravel's in there and is going to stop Ail right. from from ensorcelling these guys forever. You know, so it's 
the, for all for all he knew, those guys were just going to starve to death in an Elmoth and never be seen again. Right. Which is what happens when you wander into a fairy forest at night. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Right. So this gave plaus- a plausible reason why he expected this to work. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And while also giving Ale something to do that's evil and creepy that Arathel can catch him doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, this actually leads me to – so one of the things we were discussing last time was, it was you know, about like how they get in there and Thurin Gwethel's role and stuff. Um, and – in the end, we were leaning towards having her basically planning to kill them or working on killing them, killing some of them, and having Amlock and at least one other person escape, right? Um, and the more I think of it now, I wasn't – I was when I, we were talking about that last time, I was thinking primarily about Sauron and Thuring Gwethel and, and, you know, how that um, question kind of impacts uh, them and their depiction – but I'm also realizing that it has a really positive effect. It has a really good effect uh, on the Aeol storyline as well, right? Because the situation that we're creating um, is that you know, I, I can't uh, help but think of that phrase like, um, you know, though they are fleeing from Morgoth, hate pursued, right? Which Amlock is, right? Here's Amlock barely surviving, escaping to the very dubious safety of, you know, but like, you know, He's just exited, pursued by like Bat Ninja, right? And um, but now he's achieved safety. So I mean, he's like literally being chased by the servants of Morgoth, um, and instead of finding, you know, help, an ally, you know, uh, some kind, of, we see him instead be ensnared by Aeol and the kind of complexity of that, right? He's not an he's not an ally. Of Sauron, like he's not, he's working for Sauron and taking his orders. Uh, he's independent, and yet we can see the sort of it's 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 really uncomfortable, right? I mean, we know, at, and, and we can even see like how you know Amlach and Amlach's disappearance, how the holding of Amlach by um, Eol is like a, basically serving the purposes of Sauron, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't know that Sauron's use of non-aligned but clearly evil individuals is has a long history he does it with yes. Shelob. he tries to do it with smog he's clearly got something like that going on with the balrog like there's <laughs> right. right situations where sauron does this exact sort of thing right you know um even saruman seems to have some connection with with karadras and it, you know and Sure. In, in hinders the fellowship in that way. Right. I, I right. mean, obviously, yeah. it's not to the same extent that it is in the films where it literally is Saruman that's doing it. But <laughs> right. uh, I think I might have laughed harder in that moment the first time I saw the Fellowship of the Ring than anywhere else I laughed. But, you know, when Gandalf says, it's Saruman, I just cracked up. Oh, man, that was so funny. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, agreed, agreed. And of course, you know, we see. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, we know that he kind of uses Shelob in this way, right? In the, uh, you know, in the books, um, and of course, you know, we sort of played on that by having him use Shelob uh, and all of her brothers and sisters, right? Uh, you know, in a similar kind of way. Um, back in was that three? Was that season three? That was season three, right? Season three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and of course, it's 
I love that parallel, right? Um, that is like, yes, he has used other like creepy evil giant spiders before, and Aeol is kind of like that, right? You know, and his um, the kind of parallels between Nun Elmoth and Shelob's Lair, right? Uh, you know, you, there there are parallels to be drawn, you know, in some ways. Um, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, even with the whole like, um, you know, um, sending a prisoner to his cat, you know, again, that's it's 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 almost like that, right? Um, again, it's 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 not exactly it's not a it's not a precise parallel, but 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 Nick, I agree that pattern is clear. You know, he does that. He's totally willing to either directly manipulate or simply take advantage of you know the actions of other creatures that he knows he can count on. Um, and he's good at that. It makes me think of um, the thing that, um, uh, you know, Gandalf says in the Council of Elrond when he's talking about how Sauron will be put out of reckoning if they seek to uh, destroy the ring. Because in doing so, they're acting in a way that S- Sauron just cannot understand, right? Because the only measure that he knows is desire, the desire for power. Well, Sauron is really good, though, at taking the measure of other people whose only measure is desire, right? Uh, Nick, as you said, like, you know, evil creatures, right? So he, yeah, he, he, he's he got Smaug pegged, he's got the Balrog pegged, he's got Shelob pegged. Like, he doesn't have to hire them, right? He doesn't have to form an alliance with them. He knows how they operate, and he knows that he can he can count and he can predict their actions, uh, and therefore you know can act on the premise you know of their um, you know kind of indirect or even unacknowledged cooperation, right? So anyway, but bringing that parallel into Aeol is really interesting. I mean that that's a really interesting way to kind of frame this moment in the story of Aeol and Arthel. Right. Because, again, it's not it's only been really hinted to, to the to the viewers that Aeol is bad news. Right. I mean, even the I mean, the viewer has more data than Arathel. Right. Um, how much more data? How much? I, I'm, I'm forget The part that I'm forgetting now is the very, very first scene, their meeting scene. How how creepy was that from the perspective of the viewers? Only to some extent. Um, certainly she had just gone through a scary forest and he's at the other end waiting for her kind of thing. So it's not the nicest of introductions, but it's ambiguous enough that they could be like all this buildup of you've heard he's a scary guy, but actually he's fine is a conclusion the viewer is invited to reach at that Mm -hmm. point. The the viewer is invited Um, to trust him, give him the benefit of the doubt when they see him as season dark kind of potentially creepy looking but probably misunderstood right 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 like all villains right. <laughs> yeah you know like, exactly they just as long as the um, actor is good looking enough <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly um and he is one of our castings this this uh season isn't he but we already have Ale. oh we did season one he oh, was at the oh, of course, debate. of course, I forgot. <laughs> right, he was in the. He was like there our spokesman yeah. of Ari back in the yeah. uh, Council of Quidianen. Right, yeah. right. But we we are going to be casting Mygla this right. season. Yeah, that's a really important casting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, so right, so he was he was like potentially creepy, but probably misunderstood. Uh, and then we got 
all that we saw, all that the viewers saw, so we did have that moment where the viewers saw that he's lying and hiding things uh, from Aradel, right? That there's that he is deceiving Aradel um, on some level and to some extent, right? That was the the kind of peak that we got in their last appearance. But as I recall, even that wasn't like a complete... I mean, it's not like he was having an off-camera villain moment or something like that. It was just showing that he's not forthcoming with her and that he's keeping things from her, right? Mm. Right, so that's in episode four. So that's um, they've already met, they've had their romance, they're going on a journey, and Aradel thinks they're doing their uh, diplomatic thing, and he stops it. Right. But it's it's only one short thing that he does. So the question is, what was his motivation? Why did he stop her? And that's right. not really answered. So the viewer could make up excuses for him. Right. Or say that it was just this one particular case or something. So there, there is still room to wonder what he's doing, although that's a pretty serious red flag that he deceived right. her and warned her. But he does convince her that he has good intentions and, right, and was acting, yes. you know, in her be- in best interests, right? Um, and could conceivably convince, you know, viewers or allow viewers to wonder. Um, okay, so what's then the stage that we get to during the time off stage between then and now? How has Aradel's perspective changed? Are we trying to establish something new with her, like as far as how she acts, how she acts towards Aeold? Are, are, do we see distrust from the beginning or, or an, uh, you know, a tendency towards distrust? Or are we showing like the moment of the breaking uh, entirely where she's going to be shocked, taken aback and, and you know, kind of traumatized? So throughout the episode... Um, she doesn't n- find what he's doing until Act Three, right? Um, but she does notice that Ale seems to be trying to pull her son away from her, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, sometimes, like when it, he only seems to be really showing him a lot of attention to get her away from to get him away from her if that makes sense okay like so she's noticing she's getting like some vibes that he's very possessive over their son right um and she's not getting she herself isn't getting a lot of attention from her husband right um Basically, their relationship has kind of shifted since their sojourn out in East Valerian and the birth of their son. Right. Because now he has something else, something that is going to be more pliable and do the things that he wants more readily. But that that sense of competition, um, which is rooted in his aeols possessiveness, right, is going to be the main thing that we're going to see. But really, to this point, the only thing that's really kind of tainting their relationship yet, right? She yeah, doesn't... that she's okay. aware of, yeah. That she's yeah. aware of, right, exactly. Right. Exactly, yeah. She hasn't gone anywhere in 10 years, so she might be feeling a little bit cooped up 
I mean, this is era though. Right. Right. But they have a young child and the expectation that she would stay home and care for this young child, she might feel that it's that expectation that she's fighting against, not Ayo. So as soon as the child grows up, that would go away. Right. This is a temporary situation. So at the beginning of this episode, she views their, their conflict and her unhappiness as a temporary thing that she's working through. Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Perceiving that Ale has more uh, sinister motivations, and therefore, this isn't going to just resolve itself with time. Right. Right. Okay. So how does? So first of all, what does Ale do with the? I, I hang on a second. Wait, just so I can envision this. Mygwen is. How old does he look? He's ten, so he's going to be like. Three-year-old, ish. So yeah. I think we have him appearing to be around seven-ish. Um, what the younger, the, younger yeah. than that? Um, okay, so like okay. kindergarten because well, he's working the of, he's working the fellows for his father, so he can't be too young. Oh, he could do that at the age of six or seven, you know. He, yeah, yeah. Jumping up and hanging from the top bill. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Okay. Okay. Right. I'm just, I'm just trying to trying to picture. And so we're, we're not yet in this episode. We're not really. Ha- um. Uh. Mygwen doesn't really have much in the way of agency, right? No. At all in this. He's. No. He's he's just kind of a, a the um, the clueless pawn uh, in this one sided kind of tug of war between his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, one sided because I'm assuming that Arathel is much more gracious than Aeol in sort of sharing his you know his time, right? Um, okay, so now <clears throat> so let's go. So now here comes. Um, uh, what's his name? Amlach, right? Hate pursued. Um, what is Aeol's standard thing? He his 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 normal thing is going to be to like, you know, put them like ensorcel them, put them in a kind of stasis, and what? File them away? Like, what's his plan? What does he do? Experiment I, with him? <laughs> what what, is, what exactly is Aeol's plan? He has them wandering, bewildered until they just die. That is essentially uh, my understanding of what what's happening is that they keep wind up going in circles and you know the standard fairy forest stuff, right? right? Sure, like, that, sure. Well, I swear we just passed this tree fifteen seconds ago. They <laughs> right. they like right. the camera is in one spot, right? And they walk past the camera, and then a few seconds later they come right back into camera from the. It, you know, from the direction they couldn't possibly have just come from, but right, too quickly right. to have actually walked in a circle, right? Right, right. Okay. It's, it's not a real circle. It's like a freaky circle. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And, you okay. Know, the trees are grabbing at them, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. right. Yeah, Creepy he seems music. like the seems like the kind that he would trap them and then and then forget about them. Just leave yes. them to, leave them to their fate. Yes. Okay. Um, and then, do we have an Aeol musical theme? 
happening? I mean, there's got to be creepy music, oh, right? yeah, appropriate of creepy music playing here. Yeah, yeah the Nan Elmoth theme is is probably very heavily Aeol's theme, right? Right. right. W- but should be tangentially related to Melian's theme. Which is I was also thinking the same thing. Theme, right? Yes, I was thinking exactly that. That 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 like when they're wandering around bewildered in the forest, we sh- there should be a recollection of the girdle of million, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but twisted, you know, um, creepier. Well, well, Phil's here, so you can ask him what, what the situation is. <laughs> <laughs> right, just you know, make it work for you, Phil. Yeah, you know, that's just. That's, I like to yeah. throw out suggestions that are probably wildly implausible. Uh, no and... big deal. Every piece of music in the show should be at least somewhat related to every other piece of music. <laughs> exactly. In the show. Right? How yeah. how could that be that hard? Exactly. I don't it seems pretty simple conceptually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So that's so that works. How does she discover this? And what exactly? is her response uh, you know so she does she she comes across the 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 men no so the way ale controls everything is a you know magical device at his home base and so he has to go there to set this all in motion and okay. presumably there's like a basin of water that you can see what's going on kind of thing and it reflects the image so she, when she, if she walks into that space she would see these people wandering in the forest trapped in his okay. Okay. and it's a, it's the same place where um, where Thingle and Melian met so it's like right. it's the heart of Nan Elmoth so, that is, so right. it's a place that we're relatively familiar with also that would be a really fun set design moment, wouldn't it? To have the glade in which Thingol and Melian meet, right? But it's got to have, like, some salient features so we can recognize it later on as definitely the same place but really different, right, uh, in its overall feel. Um, and I'm imagining Aeol having, like, you know, built his whole kind of, like, house around it, right? So mm-hmm. that it's... Um, you know, maybe uh, is it still outdoors? Is it like a, maybe it's like a like like an inner courtyard, right? That he's literally built his house around, but it's his like you know little sanctum on the inside. And yep, yeah, yep. and it's probably much bigger on the inside than the outside. Also, so, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but that's also where Ale was when Arabelle came and yes. found him. So right. she's gonna make these connections herself pretty quickly. Right. Right. Not only like, hey, you're torturing these humans, but is this what you did to me? Like, is this why I experienced what I experienced when I came in? Um, mm-hmm. Yes. And I like the link there to not only how... One of the things that I really like about this is that it, it's not only like the reveal of um, uh, of his you know, true creepy nature. Um, but it also relates directly to the question of her not being able to leave, right? Because she sees how his power holds the boundaries of Nanomoth. However, she's not trapped by this ensorcelment. Right. It's not Nanomoth that is keeping her there. Right. She has a son whom she loves and would never leave with this guy that she thinks is creepy. Right. 
So she could only leave Nan Almoth if she's going to take Maiglin with her. And Maiglin is a very young child. Maiglin's father is not going to let him out of there. So she's trapped not by sorcery or by him saying, you're not allowed to leave, but by Maiglin. Like, that's how she's chained there. And she knows that by the end of the episode. She knows she's just as trapped as Amlock was, but not by magic. Right, right. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. Um, I'm picturing, by the way, there's there totally is a pool in the middle, you know, a pool of water in the middle of it. Not like, I think not necessarily a basin, just like actually a pool of water in the ground, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. I'm, I'm imagining when Thingol comes into this glade in the first place, right? There's Melian, and she's probably looking in the pool, right? We're look, we're seeing mm-hmm. like the reflection of the stars in the pool that she's looking yep. at, right? Um, and yep. he comes up to her and like. You know, we can see their reflections in the pool, right, with the stars mm-hmm. behind them and everything. Um, and that would be sort of the moment that's frozen, I would think. Yeah. Right. Probably there. Right. So the really cool thing is that uh, the echoes, the set echoes create those parallels, right, where she comes in and there he is next to the pool, looking down into the pool, except instead of the stars of Varda, you know, what is being revealed are like, you know, the torments of Amlach as, as, you know, Aeol is cheerfully torturing him to death. Um, But she, Aradel, approaches him, you know, again, like from the same direction, you know, that Thingol came in and approached Melian, Um, uh, which, of course, again, this also you know, again, links back to the Melian Aeol um, kind of anti-parallel there, right? Well, also. and just as, just as Nan Elmoth is the proto-Doriath, this glade itself and this pool are a prototypical version of Melian's Grotto, which is like the very center of the girdle right. in Menegroth. Melian's Grotto, grotto where she ensorcelled Galadriel, right? right? Back in, right. in season four, Four, yes. I think it is. Yeah. And that is an, it is itself a prototypical version of Galadriel's mirror, right? The Galadriel's mirror scene in Lord of the Rings. And so there's this lineage that comes all the way down from the from this glade in Elmoth all the way down into um, into mm-hmm. Lothlorien in Lord of the Rings. Right, right. Um, so yes, Frodo and Sam approaching Galadriel in the glade uh, there in Lothlorien. It should recall, all, you know, all of these moments um, in some really fun ways. Um, I'm loving, by the way, not only that uh, the idea of overlaying um, not Galadriel, not just with the obvious Melian parallels, which are so clearly established, right? Um, but to also overlay it with, like, a hint of ale, um, you know, to, to overlay the Fellowship's Lothlorien experience with, like, a hint of the memory of Aravel's non-Elmoth experience, I think is awesome. Like, I love that idea, because, I mean, no, that's not Galadriel, but I still have long thought and still say um, that when Aragorn says that there is upon Galadriel and upon this land no stain, he's rather over-egging the pudding at that point. <laughs> like, that is not true at all. Um, 
you know, it's 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 not Boromir's not right, you know, in what he says, but Aragorn is overdoing it uh, in what he says in response. I think. Um, and uh, anyway, so like, but but I I uh, I I like it again. It's not like you know we don't go too far with the parallel. We're not trying to uh, you know taint Galadriel too heavenly too heavily. But that recollection I think is an apt recollection. Like even if even if you know she's not going to go in that direction, right? And it's not going to work out or anything like that. But just a recollection that like it could be right. <clears throat> this is one you know option that's open. Galadriel could could go in that direction, right? She didn't go in that direction. She's not going to go in that direction. But it's there. It's out there, right? As a as a parallel and as a possibility. And I think that's pretty pretty cool. Um okay, so tell me more then about the climactic scene, about the confrontation between Arthel and Aeol. How do you how do you see, you know, putting your director hats on now? How do you see the two of them acting uh, in this, in particular, like Aeol, do it defensive, um, uh, condescending. How do we see him trying to, or is he, uh, is he uh, conciliatory, right? Is he charming, um, you know, trying to pass it off, um, or is you know, how, you know, and 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 her, how is she very indignant? Is she shocked? Is she, um, you know, uh, puzzled? How, how do you see the two of them acting? Well, she, she, I don't think that she's that surprised. Okay. Because she's been getting kind of this this weird possessive vibe over him, uh, off of him for a little while now, right? Yeah. Ever since the birth of their son. Um, and they haven't gone anywhere since then, which, you know, this isn't, this wasn't the plan. None of the things that are happening are the plan, Right. Mm-hmm. And when she confronts him, I don't think that he really like needs feels the need to be conciliatory. I've done, yeah, I did what I did, right, right. Like I'm not gonna apologize for that. Fine, you you care so much about these people. Fine, I'll let them go. Whatever, they don't mean anything to me. Um, but because he he really he has her exactly where he wants her. What is she going to do? Right. And he can, you know, when she, when she challenges him in the, in the idea that, well, you know, or would you prevent me from leaving? He can actually say no, but you'll never see your son again. Right. Cause if you leave this, this forest with it, you know, outside of, without my permission, you're not coming back. Right. Now right? he wouldn't, actually want her to go. He's possessive of her no. too, but yeah. he knows that he's got her, right? And that's yes. what he's emphasizing. Yeah, right. It's a bluff. Right. It's a bluff. But a solid one because you know, like like you say, she's not going anywhere. Right. right? Not without my son. Right. Not without my son as he yes. continues to yes. call him. Right? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were making a... a, a a Sally Fields reference there. I'm sad. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, just caught in the text. Just caught in the text. Um, um, okay. How does she act? And so you, you were saying that she's not shocked. Like this is not a moment where like her innocence is dashed, right? This is a moment of like where I mean, her suspicions are confirmed. 
I, I would say that some because she's gonna like you know you could do like a minor flashback to when she herself was on the uh, the receiving end of that, right? You know, and so in some way that realization might be a surprise, right? right. Um, but that she's shocked that he is kind of entrapping to the death anybody who shows up on his doorstep unasked yeah the dwarves did kind of tell her that that was that that happened right right and it quite nearly happened to her so it's not like it's it's it certainly doesn't blow her mind right right Mm -hmm. and and i think that's why he wouldn't need to be conciliatory because Mm -hmm. He's definitely a well. They were trespassing, so they got what they deserved. Kind he of wouldn't guy. think there's anything wrong with what he would be surprised if she found something wrong about it, right? Right. So I don't think he would even be defensive necessarily, so much as just very matter of fact of, I did exactly what you're supposed to do in this situation. <laughs> right. Right. Um, um, yeah. And so she's the one who's out of line by making a big deal of something that is nothing and all of it. You know, like he would definitely put it back on her that she's the one making problems. What does she know about humans? Oh, How sheltered is she? Is my question. Like, is she going to be, is this going to be the first time she's ever seen humans? Um, is she going to yeah. even know that they've existed? She has to know they exist because she was out traveling around. Oh yeah, that's right. Estelad after the people arrived there. Okay, it was after so, the Esteladers were already, you know, herding. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So presumably she at least saw them, but wouldn't necessarily have had any direct interactions herself. Okay. Okay. And to say that she saw them is is like. I don't necessarily think that 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 needs to have happened because right. you could easily pass through that area without seeing anybody for miles, even if there were batches of people wandering around on the plains. Right. We we only see her interaction with the caravan of dwarves. Right, with yeah. the dwarves. Who right. do talk about having traded with people, yes. including with the humans. Like, right, right, right. They've been mentioned in her company. But okay. yeah, it's possible she's maybe never seen one before. Okay. Okay. Now I'm just trying to figure out how like you know and how it fits in with her shelteredness. Um yeah, mm-hmm. I like uh uh Brian is suggesting the line from their confrontation, I am master of Nan Elmoth. Right? Like just again the sort of nonchalant like this is what I do. This is like what what is the issue here? Um yeah, uh, and it's good to see you back, Brian. I haven't seen you around these parts in forever. It's uh, great, great having you around here on this episode. Um, okay, okay. So her final, where we leave her in episode seven, is with this realization: a that she now has any, you know, any illusions, all illusions, most illusions that she had about him have now been exploded, right? But she realizes she can't leave, right? So that means when we come back to her in episode eight, there's going to be now a more kind of settled enmity between the two of them, 
basically. Like yeah. she's going to know that Aeol is her is her opponent, right? Is her enemy. Yes. Uh, cannot be trusted, um, and that she is fighting with him, you know, for the heart and soul of their child, basically, right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, that's that's her definite goal throughout right. episode eight is to try to win Michael to her side. Right. Right. So when we get then to episode eight. Um, we're now having her with a significantly older but still juvenile Myglin, right? So we're he's he's looking like a twelve year old ish, twelve thirteen year old, right? So he's he's um, still pre-teen. clearly pre-teen. right preteen. Okay, so he's still well short of um, uh, adulthood. Clearly, you know, but also not you know, an elementary school kid either. Right. He's, he, he's in the middle. Okay. Um, Michael is in middle school. Michael is in middle school. That's a horrifying, horrifying image right there. Um, okay. Okay. Right. Michael in the middle schooler. Um, now the story, her telling him the stories of Nevrest and Gondo. And I love the pop-up book, by the way. Um, that seems exactly like what, like, like what a Noldor mom would be doing, right? Making these like gorgeous, intricate. <laughs> I'm so glad you like it because it was something that kind of seemed a little absurd as when yes. you first imagined it. Because when you first imagine like this, like this elf, princess making a pop-up book for her child and then showing it on screen in a show made for adults it seems a little absurd right until you think about how does a noldor a noldo make a pop-up book it's the most magnificent oh it's gonna be amazing yeah possibly mm-hmm. make right yeah because yeah. he's 50 years old she's spent 50 years making this, <laughs> making pop-up this book. <laughs> 25. 25 years. Yeah, exactly. Still. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a decades she's been to, and, and, and I love the way, what I like about it most is what it, I mean, it, first of all, it reminds us of several things, right? It reminds us that she's an oldo, right? You know, this is what they do right there. Um, you know, no, piece of artwork is too intricate or elaborate, uh, you know, uh, for them. Uh, but also it shows, um, it's a really interesting glimpse, I think of her last 25 years, right. Of her being, um, alone with very little else to do. Um, so we see, but, but of course this book itself is, associated closely with two things, right? With her son, right? And and we can see the care that she has given uh, to her son. Even even like to introduce him to art in this way, right? Because clearly, stylistically, it's going to be very different from everything else surrounding them, right? It's going to be very different from all of Aeol's work and Aeol's things. Um, and so even just in kind of exposing him to the particular kind of intricate beauty of Noldor craftsmanship, even that is itself a kind of uh, point of contact, deliberate point of contact for her son with her culture, right? As opposed to her fa- to his father's culture. Um, but of course, it's also, the book is also dedicated to the 
you know, her people, right. And, uh, and the places that she remembers and, and, uh, you know, and designed to inspire love for and desire for these things in her son as well, to share her heritage and their people with her son. Um, uh, so I, I think, I, I, I think it's, it's really neat. I mean, I agree, uh, Nick, with a pop-up book, it is conceivable, right? We would have to be careful in how it's presented so that it didn't look comical, right? Because it yeah. could look comical, right? It could look comical in the same way that, like, uh, you know, she, like, brings in a snack and it's like a seven-layer wedding cake or something like that. You know, like, yeah. you know, I just whipped this up in the kitchen and, and, and pull that out, and that's funny, right? That would get a laugh. Um, it's conceivable. I could imagine a similar kind of reaction, right? Like, this, like, you know, ridiculously over elaborate thing that she brings. Let me read you a story. Plump, right. And then this, you know, huge, incredibly intricate thing comes. But, but again, I, I don't think it need be like that. I don't think that that need be the reaction if we, um, if we handle it properly. And I like even the fact that Ale calls it out, right. That he, 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 he critiques it as being babyish. Um, and my Gwen's interest in his mother's stories as, uh, as you know, a, uh, um, an overly childish interest uh, of his so that it kind of makes it explicit. You know, this is clearly a thing um, that she made for him, began making for him, certainly, uh, when he was a much younger child, right, a long time ago, um, and still is used by the two of them as, you know, the premise for, for stories. Now more deeper and more serious stories about them than she uh, used to tell before. Um, on the subject of which, I was interested in sort of showing that um, uh, Marie in the script, you had her referring when she was talking about Vinyamar, you had her uh, speaking uh, specifically of the Marathatathad, right? Um, which was a really cool opportunity to have him ask innocently if dad came, right, to the Marathatarthad, right? Uh, you know, was father involved in the Feast of Reuniting? Not not so much, actually. Yeah, no. No, kind of boycotted that one he did. Um, so that's kind of fun by itself. But I was, I was just kind of thinking, like, thematically. I, I was interested in your choice to kind of dwell on uh, on Nevrast, Vinyamar, and the Marathatarthad instead of lingering on Gondolin in that moment, which, cause there's not a whole, a whole lot of script time, right. In that moment for the, for storytelling. Um, and obviously it's, it's Mygwin who's later on going to be bringing up, you know, uh, like, you know, mom's the daughter of the high King, right. You know, that's going to, he's going to, he's going to be bringing in the stories, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, relating things from her stories. Um, but, um, what were you, what were you thinking about when you p put the focus on Vinyamar and the Marathad there? Um, I wanted to show how nostalgic she is and how she really misses her family and her friends and everything. And she had complicated feelings about Gondolin and that's why she left. Mm -hmm. She didn't necessarily have those complicated feelings about Nevrest. That was just right. a place that, or, you know, Vinyamar, sorry. That was just a place that she loved. So I, I thought that would be an uncomplicated little vignette. I was hoping that I wasn't glossing over Gondolin too much at the end of the scene. <laughs> the, the scene does build up to Gondolin at least. Right, right. But it's true that I didn't necessarily include a similar vignette about, remember this time in Gondolin, let me tell you about it. Right, um, right. 
so that was yeah it was it was mostly because Vinyamar is now deserted and empty so it only lives in memories and i just kind of wanted to show that nostalgia and that like mm -hmm. loss whereas right. gondolin's a real city that you, you could go to if you right wanted. if you knew how to get there right Aaron, yeah. if you could find it yeah yeah, yeah. and i i kind of like that we kind of build to gondolin but then we're disappointed mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. in a way like there's no catharsis in the story of gondolin although that's clearly where we're headed um right. and also and, that that's the moment when ale interrupts the conversation you know yeah. like the uh he breaks into the uh the the description of and uh concept of going to gondolin and uh, yeah. drags Maglin away at that perhaps point. he was watching them on nanny pond right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. he had his two-way uh his yeah. two-way pond on there yeah yeah, to the, yeah. yeah. uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> Uh, has his little monitor going all the time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I also yeah, there's a reason why I don't, I don't check in on the, even though I can check in on the baby monitor with the, you know, which we have a video baby monitor in the, in, in our daughter's room. I don't check in on that during the day because that kind of feels like I'm spying on my <laughs> wife in a weird right. way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or the, or the people that you've ensorcelled. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. Right. <laughs> That's a different video feed anyway, but, uh, but yeah. Blocking Dave on Twitter. <laughs> but I'm sorry, Marie, you, you were going to, you were going to talk about the conversation and where they were headed. No, I was just going to say that another thing I left out of the scene is the silent servants. Yes. Um, so Ooh. it there's room for other things here and the question is where to put the emphasis so i wanted to at least mention gondolin and having the story mm -hmm. interrupted seemed okay but if we needed like silent servants to be standing there listening to this whole thing as like ale spies that could be incorporated without any effort at all like there's definitely room for I like that actually. If 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 the silent servants all have liveries that look kind of like how Aeol, not exactly like, but kind of like how Aeol himself dresses, right? Um, and if during the touching story time scene between Myglin and uh, we occasionally show that like. Standing along the wall are these, you know, servants who are dressed in Aeol's livery watching, you know, that that kind of sense of his creepy, you know, presence watching over them and, and uh, you know, making sure that it, it's I, I kind of like that effect a lot. You know, that his his surrogates there in the room all the time, um, even to have that not shown for the whole first half of their conversation. And then we kind of pan out and realize that, like. You know the creepy footmen have been lurking over, <laughs> like looming over her the entire time. Um, is I think pretty uh, pretty cool, and also kind of begins to show. Um, the other thing that I like about that is that that kind of a reveal recontextualizes the story. Like it, it it doesn't change it necessarily, but it adds a new layer onto it. Right at first, it's about her connection with her son, and it's about her. Um, you know, what she's trying to teach him and how she's, uh, you know, what she's trying to show him and share with him. 
but then in the context of like Ail's watchers, right, it becomes more of an act of rebellion, right? Um, to be doing, you know, to be to be talking about Gondolin and talking about the Noldor and praising the Noldor, you know, under the noses, uh, you know, of his you know, in defiance of, um, you know, Aeol's disapproval by proxy, right, uh, in the silent footman uh, around the room. Um, and I, 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 I like that dimension. I think that's pretty cool. Um, so when Aeol takes Maeglin away, right, this, this is the first time he literally takes him completely away, leaving Arathel by herself, right? Um, and I think that's, it's really... It is well done to show how excited Maeglin is about this, right? To have him, you know, you can really see that uh, um, the tug of war thing, right? The, um, you know, drawing him away from his happy story time talking and thinking about the Noldor with his mom to, um, you know, now being brought into these, uh, you know, more grown up things in, in, in you know, in, in, in Ail's life. What's Ail's plan, by the way? We never really know this. Like the text never says, right? What's Aeol's long-term plan? Like possessiveness, sure. But what does he envision in his relationship with Maeglin, do you think? He's planning to shape his son into a little mini-me. So that he'll have a perfect little minion who does what he wants and agrees with him on everything and will just be around. Um, So not really an ideal measure of fatherhood um but the most extremely possessive version of love for a child right right yeah and it's and even that of course is like why because i mean as we've talked about before right i mean that um there's no like I shall raise you up and you shall take over my evil, my little evil empire when I'm gone, right? This, that's not a thing, right, among the elves. He doesn't need an heir. He doesn't need a, um, but he's also presumably not expanding either, right? Mm-hmm. That like with my, with the help of my, you know, junior assistant whom I've brainwashed into identical views to myself, uh, I shall now be able to rule twice as large a creepy forest as I did before. Like, that's not it either, right? No, I mean, obviously, part of it is just to hurt her, though. Right. Um, he's he's using their son to get to her because right. he knows that she loves the son but doesn't love him anymore, presumably. Or at least doesn't truly want to be with him anymore. <laughs> right. Um, right. Her feelings may be complicated. But also, she's, like... He's got his, like, creepy silent servants, right? Mm-hmm. And who do exactly what he wants without question. And this is like that, but better, because it doesn't, he does it of his own free will. Right. You know, it's like, it's like a twisted version of Aule, I think. Right. Instead of, instead of learners whom he could teach, you know, he has, like, this is like the ultimate sort of affirmation of himself, Essentially, yes. right. Yeah, and and the ultimate affirmation of his own awesomeness, because right. here is this 
awesome person that he has himself per, like personally created like, yes, in almost every yes. facet who looks up to him and thinks he's even more awesome. Right, right, right. Yeah, I can definitely see Ailes thinking not really going beyond that. Um, uh, it's like looking into an awesome but not as awesome as you mirror. <laughs> right, right. Who looks at you with exactly the view of adoration and respect um, that you think everyone should have, right? Yeah. yeah. The appropriate amount, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> of course, exactly. The only one who has uh, who shows you the appropriate amount. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, all right, that makes that's, sense. That's kind of how AL works, right? Like, he, he's he, his brand of, like, sort of evil isn't the take over the world kind. It's more focused on, like, you know, sort of dominating the people in front of him. Right. It's just turned almost entirely inward. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's just, he's there in his you know, like sort of evil, but ultimately simply narcissistic little Island, right. In the middle of the, in the middle of Beleriand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't have any plans for conquest. He doesn't have any, um, you know, he's, he's, um, He's just like doing his own thing and establishing yeah. his own little realm, and he doesn't care what goes on outside because it's all about him. And, he's at the center, and it's not like he's even like it's not like he's going out of his way to you to torture his wife and son or anything. Like he he's not completely a sadist. It's really just that he he just he just is trying to exercise a level of control that he shouldn't be. Right, as is appropriate, because he is the master, right? I mean, that's this is um, uh, even the the use of his his refusal to give Maiglin a name, right, um, and just call him my son. It's, that's that that's one of my favorite details, by the way. I feel like Tolkien tells us more about Aeol's character in that detail than in almost anything else that we get from him, right? Because like, what else is there to him? Right. He is not a separate person. He's not his own. He is my son. Like that's that is that is that is that is his identity. Like what other identity does he need? Um, That's super revealing, I think. Um, Mm. Yeah. He's he's like he's he's an evil Tom Bombadil character. (laughs) Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about um, there was a great deal of emphasis in the with the visiting to the dwarves. There were there were kind of two things that were primarily emphasized, two themes that got primarily emphasized in the in the visit to Nogrod. Well, three. One was just the splendor of the dwarf works, right? Um, uh, which is, I think, interesting and important in in some ways uh, for Maiglin. Um, especially like Mr. Future Captain of Miners here, right, is, uh, you know, this is a this is an important learning moment for Maiglin, right? Um, but uh, in addition, um, he does get shown around the mines, doesn't he? Doesn't it get, does it get shown to the mines or? I didn't specifically call out mines, but I mean, he can. The tour is supposed to include the wonders of Nogrod, so. Right. Right. The mind's um, the I, I'm just I'm just kind of thinking like it just I just you know 
planting the seed for a few seasons down the road. Uh, you know, yeah. Mygwin yeah. being like, tell me more about your minds or something like the, uh, you know, that's or or him reporting back afterwards to be like, their minds are so cool. Like, you know, like, they, like what? You know, anyway, yeah, I'm just, you know, mining is going to be his thing. But anyway, um, so I. Uh, uh, oh yeah, two other themes, right? Uh, uh, mortality uh, and kingship, and his father's exclusion from that leadership. You know, like that 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 conversation at the end where he learns that his father is not as influential as he thinks his father is. Right? Um, both those are both really interesting moments. So tell me why why mortality? What what's the what's the what is the feature of the mortality sub theme here? The mortality among the dwarves. The doors have been keeping that a secret from the elves for some time. Um, back in season three, Norn made the call to not tell the Sindar of Doriath right. about dwarven mortality, and they've kind of kept with that. So the fact that Ale was well aware and would even be told news of a death and invited to a funeral is to show that he has a long history with these dwarves and they don't have secrets from him the way they have secrets from the other elves. Right, right. I did like that element of it, the kind of, he's an insider, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Even his, because he says that the dwarves are really secretive and they don't like telling the elves about this, right? The the fact that he's able to share that um, is, I think, a really fun effect there. Um, yeah. Okay. And then the other element is the friendship between mortal beings and immortal beings is kind of the whole issue with the story in Nargothrond this episode. So right. that is one aspect of the friendship of Ael and the dwarves that can parallel what's going on with Andreth and Finrod. So right. why not draw that to everyone's attention now? Like, why right. now? And that's kind of why now. Right, right. The other thing, of course, that it, especially since we're talking about kingly mortality, is it raises the issue of heirs, right? Um, uh, yeah, Turgon and that he has no heirs is an issue, right, with Maeglin. And so kind of planting the seed of kings do die uh, <laughs> and by the way one of my favorite lines was uh, when uh, when Aeol says that the new king will rule for like you know two centuries and Mike when it's like so soon like that's it <laughs> you know that I, I I like that I thought that was fun um, and he's shocked at he's how short the life himself I know he right. hasn't lived two centuries yet but it yeah. seemed the elders perspective right right no exactly I mean he would um, 25 years is plenty of time to be acculturated into, uh, you know, the expectation of of centuries. I mean, even just the fact that, I mean, kids have a sense of, you know, how long they're going to be kids for. You know, like they know how many yeah. years or, you know, like they 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 know this, right? They know like what it's um, when the threshold comes, you know, they're they're sort of so he he's going to know. Um, he's, you know, 50 years, um, you know, he said a century or two is how long the dwarf is going to live. And he's, you know, he knows 50 years is only then going to be, is he, he's not even going to be a grown up until then. Um, so yeah, he's going to be well aware of the, 
different scale of time. But I thought that was fun. Um, okay. Um, so tell me more about the uh, Aeol not getting... Um, not being as important as uh, as as Maiguin thinks. This is going to be the moment, really the first moment, where we have Maiguin's eyes being opened, right? Maiguin's mm-hmm. illusions being shattered, obviously slower than his mom, because mm-hmm. um, he, he was only a baby when hers were. Uh, but um, uh, it's about his realization that his dad isn't as awesome as he thought he was. Right. So basically, yeah. it's it's literally undercutting the very goal that Aeol has in mind, right? Um, and we're showing that what Arathel thought was going to happen here was never going to happen. Because while Aeol has a relationship with the dwarves, he was never that important to them. Mm-hmm. And they've always thought he was kind of weird, mm-hmm. right? And they'd much rather be allies. They'd much rather be allies and trading partners with the Nolor than with Aeol. Right. 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 Okay. Where do we see Maiguan making his choice? Does he do that explicitly? Not in this episode. Um, At the end of the episode, he comes home. And his mom and dad snipe at each other. And then it's Arabelle and Maiglin and alone together. And he says, okay, tell me more about Gondolin. Right. And right. the fact that she, and she's asking about a trip, like, how was Nograd? So if he wanted to just effusively say how amazing Nograd was and never mention Gondolin again, like that would have been one thing, but he right. definitely doesn't do that. So right. it's not explicit, but he's, realized that his father is not the hotshot that he says he is. But his mom really is the daughter of the High King of the Noldor and really is the sister of the King of Gondolin. And oh, hey, there's an opportunity here. Right, right. Um, No one can go to Gondolin because it's a secret. So tell me about your time in Gondolin. Like, he knows (laughs) she knows how to get there. Right, right. Yeah, nobody else could go to Gondolin. Um, and even that, like the... Um, and and I, I love the way that it sets up, like the how the journey with his dad to the, you know, secret halls of the dwarves um, sets up that parallel, right? Journey with parent to secret city in the mountains, <laughs> right? Um, uh, so, you know, so we can see... Uh, we can, see, But yet in that, it's a disillusioning trip in that way. Right. That um, in the end, his father can't take him as far, in a sense, right, as Mm -hmm. uh, as his mom is able to. And and he's also not making this choice out of love for one parent over the other or because he likes one of them better. It's it's a very calculated choice on his part. And I think that shows a little bit of how cold Maglin is. Right. Like, he's just a little kid here. But there are some warning signs that he is not a normal little kid. Right. (laughs) Right. There's some some weird stuff going on with him. That's just the the last thing I was going to ask about this. How creepy is Maiguin in this episode? Like, on the creep scale. He's 
relatively low because he's precocious, right? I mean, he yeah. should be precocious. Yes. yes, he he doesn't act like a little kid. You, you know, it's it's interesting. I've, I've I've talked about being homeschooled before, but I met a family quite recently, and um, we were sitting down at dinner with them, and their daughter, who was probably about I want to say like nine or ten, was talking to us like not like a kid talks to you, but like mm -hmm. they're talking to an equal. Right. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, they homeschool their kids. Right. And I, right. It, I was like, and, I, very it, and when, when that was re revealed, I was like, I knew you were homeschooled. You know how I knew? Because you talk to adults like you're a normal person. Right. Socialized Amazing. by adults rather than by kids your own age. Yes. yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And that is kind of the feel that he should give off you know not not the stereotypical like awkward unable to be cool mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. homeschooled kid but the homeschooled kid who talks to adults like that's a normal thing to do right because it's what they normally do yeah um and that so and this would be like this kind of thing would be revealed in his conversation with his parents but primarily i would think in his conversation with the dwarves like they would the, the 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 disjunction between their expectations of him and his actual performance would make that most clear, right? Yeah. Well, and there, I mean, there's so much going on with that. The cultural differences, the perception of his age among the dwarves versus his actual age. Is he mm -hmm. looks like a teenager? But when do dwarves look like teenagers? I don't know. And right. he's probably taller than all the dwarves, so. Right. Do they treat him as an adult because he looks grown to them? Like there's, there's this boundaries that are very fluid there. So I, I'm not right. sure if I necessarily brought him across as quite as precocious as he could be. Like there probably are some tweaks that could make that come out a little bit more. Um, but there is there's, there's several layers of what's going on in his interaction with. Let's right. I mean one dwarf <laughs> he interacts with one dwarf. right right. <laughs> Perhaps some particularly savvy questions about mining. No, sorry, I'm not obsessed. Uh, I, <laughs> you, you know, it's all, it's, it's all about the long game. Silverfield, it's all yeah. about the long well, game, right? I will admit that I wanted to show some differences between Novgorod and Belagost here. And right. we've established in the past that Belagost is the dwarf city where the weapons and the armor are made. Right. And the right. craftsmen and the tradesmen and the caravans are all from Belagost. And then Novgorod has been a little bit more removed from Beleriand. And they're the jewelers and the artisans and the fancy artwork of the dwarves. So it's right. kind of the, the practical versus the artistic mm -hmm. sides division. Yes. So I had to put a line in the script about how the engineers are from Belagost and the architects are from the crowd. I, right. I just, I couldn't avoid that. <laughs> right. Right. No, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, okay, good. Well, let's, uh, let's, I, I do have, aspirations to talk about at least one other part of episode eight before we're done. Uh, so let's move on to the next bit of episode eight uh, of episode eight. So to the horizon is the title of the, of the, of the episode, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So it's been a 15 year gap since the council of Estelad. So we've got the house of hot is now up North and firmly established, right? So we're skipping over, the awkward journey and uh, establishment of new place uh, up there in Dorloman. Um, 
Okay, so we have the um, the Arathel plot that we've been talking about, the Arathel and Ale plot that we've been talking about is the B plot. Uh, the people of Beor are the centerpiece, right? That's the A story, Endreth, uh, and her solution for this, and her unexpected field trip, unexpected to me anyway, uh, field trip uh, that she takes. Um, and then, of course, the C plot also connected to the A plot, uh, Brigalos, her brother. Um, yeah, yeah, I like it. By the way, I loved the bonfire. I thought that was a really great because we had we had been talking and joking before about unre- you know surly uh, Beorian teenagers and their unrest uh, and misbehavior uh, right in Nargothrond. Um, but at the time, we had only some like fairly flippant, unrealistic, but comical suggestions about how to bring that about. Um, I loved the bonfire idea. I thought that was a really brilliant way to... It was perfect. It's perfect because it's it's a legitimate... I mean, like, boy, how do you... Uh, how do you rub the 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 uh, uh, you know the elves of Nargothrond the wrong way? Right, is is betraying the secrecy of their halls, uh, you know, in a way that's plainly visible for miles and miles around. Um, so this is not only not only like disrespectful, but like genuinely reckless, right, and dangerous even. Um, the because there are very few other things that they could do that would actually compromise. Uh, the elves, their hosts, and yet yeah. also is a perfectly natural, you know, without having to escalate things too far, is a perfectly natural mm-hmm. sort of rebellious expression, and even something, you know, that an unruly group of teenagers could convince themselves is not a big deal, and like people are making too much of a big deal out of it, right? So I, I, I love that. I thought that was a really great, and then the like elves being both puzzled and irritated, and more than irritated, but also. You know, again, like it's not like harm was done to somebody, right? It's not like they're destroying things or, you know. Uh, but the elves do know that that Morgoth has airborne spies, right? You know, like they know the vampires exist, right? You know, and they're not eagles, but that's not that's not an excuse to go around lighting fires. And of course, the other the other benefit is that we got to make do more 80s action movie stuff which was which is always fun and apparently only can be done when there's men around (laughs) right (laughs) right yeah i have to admit that i was picturing the opening scene of jaws uh when you were describing the the bonfire uh uh yes the scene on the beach in karate kid yeah yeah also yes yeah something led to this yeah. Absolutely. Two bonfires on beaches uh, with different results. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. But no, I, it was just, it was perfect. But again, I put into this context, it's really seriously a big deal. Like, that's not just, a, you know, um, so it was a great way to put them really genuinely in the wrong. And yet... Um, you know, nevertheless, without depicting them as unsympathetic and 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 merely irritating, right? right? So right. I thought it was, we, a, it was a fantastic vehicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see they don't mean any harm, right? You know, they're not like you know, 
they don't look like bad kids. You know, Bregolas doesn't look like a bad kid. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I, I did I did like that. Uh, I did li- I did li- like that a lot. Um, but let's let's talk about Andreth. Um So I thought the conversations with Finrod went pretty well. Um, I thought that the the um, my favorite little touch was him forgetting that like this is the second time we've had this bonfire problem. Why does this keep happening? And Andra and I don't know, having to remind him that it was more than a decade ago that the last time that this happened, right? Um, these kids were barely even born the last time that this happened, you know, and so it's not a, it's not a recurring problem in the way that he thinks, but it's a, but it is a recurring problem and points to a to a to a a, a big issue, right? And and even the very fact that he's oblivious to the fact that this um, involves an entirely new generation of, you know, teenagers who are doing the same thing shows, you know, really kind of points to the problem. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that that's pretty cool. Um, tell me more about the visit to the Haladin, about why, I mean, apart from the obvious, like, more Haleth, which is worth any amount of digression, um, uh, especially since it was a pretty... I did not expect that we would get an opportunity to see this Haleth, right? To see the established Haleth. The, Mm. I am totally comfortable with my leadership and no one questions me. I'm not, you know, a young girl learning to lead in crisis and developing, you know, the strength of my will and, and my rapport with my people, but the, like, I am the unquestioned queen of this domain. We are well established in ourselves. And, uh, here is the life that we have made for ourselves. That was, again, that's, I'm not, I don't, I, you know, it, all of that worth the price of admission <laughs> on whatever, what, however feeble an excuse. Um, yeah. but thinking from, from Andreth's perspective, what, what were the primary reasons why you wanted to take her on this trip? So the issue with trying to come up with a new revolutionary idea when you grew up in a situation is that you, you usually can't think outside the box of what mm-hmm. reality is for you. So Adenel can see that there's been a change over her lifetime and can see that the, the people live differently now than they did when they first came to Nargothrond and how this is all impacted them, but Andreth grew up there. She's only ever known this. Right. So typically reformers are people who came from the outside and came in and see what's wrong right. and fix it. To grow up within it and then become a reformer is a little more rare. Right. So we needed to take Andreth out of Nargothrond so she could see something else and then bring the ideas home. Mm. There's There's a few things. Like what Andrith winds up doing is going to make her people's lives more difficult. And we had to bring her into that with her eyes wide open. Otherwise she looks right. kind of dumb, right? right? Like if they get to Ladros and they realize, Ooh, this is, this is hard. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'll tell you when I was reading Marie's script, as, like as has been happening to me, a shocking amount over the past season, I found myself getting really emotional thinking about how hard life 
has been for humans for millennia and how much easier <laughs> I have it. It's absurd. Right. It's absurd how easy we have it in comparison mm -hmm. to all of history. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, right. so, so there's a little bit of the city mouse visits the country, your country mouse visits the city mouse going yeah. on here. Um, <laughs> right. right. Where Andreth is a fish out of water among Hallis people because she's never had to live this way before. Mm -hmm. Right. I one of the, I think my favorite non Hallith moment uh, in this whole segment was the, uh, the, the grain grinding scene. I thought that that worked so well, Maria. I just, I love the way that that was balanced, right? On the one hand, um, we see her, Kalulessness, right? She's clumsy and 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 soft-handed and doesn't know how to do any of these things, right? At the same time, we see her technological advancement as she's trying to yeah. explain how they grind grain in Nargothrond. Um, and so, just like the, the the fact that she has this academic understanding of the grinding process, but you know, can't like do it with her own hands right the the you know her physical clumsiness uh with it and yet also the um i loved the singing at the end right that we can because the way it's there were so many ways in which that scene could have gone badly right like that is Andreth could have ended up looking really bad. Like she could have sounded like a snob or something, and she didn't sound like a snob. She could have looked uh, like a hopeless incompetent, and she didn't look like a hopeless incompetent. The people of, uh, you know, the 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 Haladin women that she's grinding with could have ended up looking like savages, you know, whom we were making fun of. Like, we're laughing at because like, they're so primitive compared to you know, even if Andreth, it doesn't come across as superior and condescending um, the viewers could have felt superior and condescending looking at them um, but I love, it. It, it, it's the same kind of balance you were doing with the with the illiteracy thing, right? Like, it's it's just it's just different, right? And, and like, she begins to see and we begin to see through that, like yeah, it's true. They do not have the technological advancement. Like, their tools are cruder. There's a lot that they don't know than that they haven't learned. That The people of Beor have learned these things from the elves and know more than the people of, of, of Haleth. And yet, their ways are good ways, actually. Like, even though they're not as sophisticated in many ways. And I, I thought that that balance of... Because we do kind of need to see both sides of that, right? We need to see both what the House of Beor has legitimately gained from being with the elves. They've not been neglected, right? They're not, and yet they're not just the superior society coming and, you know, uh, visiting the peasants either. So, one, I like speaking of Speaking of the technological difference, there was one very small detail that Marie did um, in the script that I thought was really fascinating, and that's um, Larnell's reaction when Andreth tries to explain the the milling process for the House of Beor, she yeah. has this kind of puzzled look and kind of moves on from it because like that none of that made any it sense. Didn't did, did make any sense, yeah. And the thing that I found really interesting about that detail is that that kind of reaction is something that you would only know about if you had had a conversation like that before, if you had traveled to another culture 
and had to explain how things are done in your probably more technologically advanced culture and you get that same reaction and i know that marie has had those conversations before <laughs> and you can tell because of that detail yeah yeah no i thought i thought that was really well done. but again like with neither side being like dismissed yeah. right um like like the woman isn't awed by this right but and she but and she doesn't like kind of it doesn't really break her stride either. She thinks about it for a minute. It doesn't make any sense. And she is, oh, whatever. And then goes back to what right. her life is. And that's the way that people actually react under those circumstances in cases that I've seen anyway. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, and, and again, like, even though she's talking about the technologically superior grinding processes that they have in Nargothrond. It also, it doesn't get all like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court either. Like she's not coming among the Haladine and bringing the blessings of superior technology with her. You know, she brings them tools that they don't have or, you know, things that are unlike things that they, you know, probably superior to what they have. But it's, but those are just gifts, right? It's not, um, uh, she's not, she doesn't change. She's not uplifting them. No. No, exactly. It does not have that effect. Um, she's just learning from them and benefiting from her t- herself uh, from the time among them. And, and her conclusions when she leaves is that she has gained an appreciation of things that, she, you know, that there are ways in which she knows that they need to emulate them. Um, the Haladin. And that I get, I think that's really cool. Again, the, and, and in a lot of ways, kind of almost counterintuitive, right? Um, the uh, uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I'm not sure. I think that this parallel could be kind of explored a little bit more, though I'm not quite sure how to do it. But the the I couldn't help but think of two scenes in parallel: one, the Andreth grinding scene that we were talking about, and the other, uh, the Bregolas and the horse guy scene, right? Yeah, yeah, the manure shoveling scene. Um, uh, But most importantly, his interaction with the stable guy, right, who's like, you know, taking care of horses is like his his profession and he's he likes horses and he's comfortable and he's happy there. Um, And uh, it was just... It was an interesting contrast, right? Because Bregolas's conclusion from this is kind of horror might be a little bit overstating it. But anyway, I mean, he's kind of appalled by that. I mean, this really it kind of opens his eyes. Um, And I loved what you did with that, the way that Bregolas goes from seeing we're being submitted to drudgery as a punishment. And yet the really horrifying thing is that the thing that's being afflicted on us as a punishment is like the normal daily life of our, you know, of, of the older generation. Um the really bad thing is that I might end up like that horse guy who's shoveling manure and liking it full time. Right. You know, that, 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 like, like that's all that there is. But again, but do you see what I mean about the parallel there? Like that was, you know, she, Andreth is encountering, uh, I mean, Bregolas is not really having his perspective broadened by shoveling manure. Right. You know, he does not have that same, that same kind of, doesn't draw the same kinds of conclusions. Right. The the purpose of the scene with the grinding of grain is not that manual labor is wonderful and should be glorified. Right. 
it's that what the people of Halif have is a community and that they work together at tasks that are necessary for their survival. And yes, it's difficult work and yes, it's backbreaking and painful. Nobody actually wants to do this stuff, but you have to. And so they do it together and they, and they sing their work song and they right. make it happen. So it has meaning. The shoveling of the um, stables, yeah, it's work that has to be done. But this guy does it as a solitary task. He has, he has like zero interaction with Bregolas throughout this whole thing. He's not teaching him about horses. He's not bringing him into a group of people who all care for the horses and hang out together and make it their like little thing. It's a solitary task. He does it on his own. It's very repetitive. Once and he doesn't get to enjoy the fruits of it. Right. He doesn't, right. Ride he, the he, he, he doesn't ride the horses. Right. Right. I like right. that. That was that was a really interesting touch. Um, yeah. yeah. He ends up the guy, the horse dude. Right. Ends up being the sort of spokesperson for those who don't want to go. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite sure kind of how to take that or how I was meant to take that as like, a, is this is this like that those of the House of Beor who have just like. Is he a, a representative of like the harm that has been done to the House of Bayor, essentially? He's institutionalized, certainly. Right. You know, like Eowyn says, use in old age ex- has accepted his limits. <laughs> right. 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 You know, and it, I I agree that it could feel a little bit muddy. I think the fact that Adonel herself doesn't go, kind of helps soften that a little bit um, mm-hmm. because like let's be realistic here the older people who go like they're not going to be okay right. like they're going to go right. to a much harder life The nobody knows what they're doing right they can't teach anybody these skills because they don't have them right right so like they're, they're, they're all, almost dead weight in that circumstance in, in a way that older people generally aren't you know in, in a in a culture in a sustenance culture older people have a job to do right even they if they important can't, roles yes right they don't have even if they don't have physical tasks that they're doing they still have an immensely important role and that's a role that they can't play because they've been institutionalized right right it also is a really interesting glimpse into what looks like almost like a lost generation, right? I mean, it's like they, mm-hmm. they are like the casualties. Um, they're the living examples of, of like the, the unintended bad consequence of Finrod's choice and Bayor's choice, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They are lost potential. Like they, they're not going to go on to accomplish anything. That guy's going to stay mucking stables on his own you know, for the rest of his short life. Um, yeah. And again, no, no, no harm was intended, right? No, mm-hmm. ma- you know, no evil has been done. And yet um, there's a whole generation of people who are not going to like accomplish anything in a sense. Right. Mm. I, the, the old man in the stables is content with his life, but the viewer is not invited to, feel that same way about it right 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 in the same way that we are invited into the peace and contentment 
of the Haladin, uh when when we get there. Now, um, the other thing that was really interesting, um, the other scene that was really interesting to me, and of course I loved the conversations with Haleth, but neither of those stood out to me quite like the grain scene and the hunting scene. Um, uh, Adonel's frozen moment when she cluelessly freezes and doesn't know what to do in the middle of the hunt and is almost killed um, is really interesting. And and this one of the things that this sort of shows is like her own recognition. I mean, it's interesting that she has this experience, right, which one could easily imagine a conclusion that could be drawn from that is we are not cut out for this, right? Like I am the a representative of a soft and clueless people who would, who could never do that, right? Um, but that's not her conclusion, right? I mean, she 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 does this, and then in fact she turns around and she's like, "Yeah, no, this is this is just what we need." So tell tell me more about how um, sort of how that operates that in the feast scene afterwards, and sort of what was being uh, what you were sort of showing through all of those things. The hunter who is with. Um, Andra, who has the dogs and actually kills the Aras, is mm-hmm. a young hunter. So this is someone younger than Andra. Mm-hmm. And yet this person is successful in what he is doing. He's not just like an apprentice or hanging out on the sidelines. He's an active part of the group. And at the feast afterwards, he's celebrated for his contribution. Right. And looking back at her own culture, Andreth recognizes that people of her age are considered apprentices mm-hmm. and people who stand on the sidelines and not people who do things. So she she's recognizing that there's opportunities in a culture like this for a young person to contribute and be happy about what they're working on and in a way that she just hasn't seen before. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. And then we have the the unexpected gift from Haleth, right? And it's the horns of that Aurox that almost killed her? Or an an Aurox like it anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, Why that gift? I was interested in that gift. Why that gift in particular? Any, 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 anything? I mean, it's it's clearly, I mean, it clearly ties her, like she is taking home with her the memory of of that experience specifically, right? With the, Mm. also as you've talked about the sort of the communal thing, I mean, the way that that, um, you know, the drinking horn of the Oryx horn also recalls the sort of communal life of the Haladin there uh, as well. I wanted there to be a bookend gift giving scene and I wasn't really sure on the gifts. So Mm -hmm. I kind of threw it out on the boards and was like, what should these gifts be? And um, I did get some suggestions and the consensus seemed to be that it should be something that represents each culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so the advanced technology of the House of Bayor versus the warrior culture of the Haladin is kind of where I was showing that. But there were other suggestions too. So, I mean, it could have been a harp going one way or the other or um, uh, weapons going one way or the other. Presumably from the elves of Nargothrond would have weapons that the Haladin would like, but... So, one thing that we could do is use use the horn 
right? But instead of it just being the horn from the aurochs, it's been made into an instrument, right? And the horn represents to at least Western cultures, it's a call to action, right? Mm -hmm. And so that horn can be sounded when they're, and of course, it's probably huge, right? Right. Like the one of the closest living genetic relatives of the ancient aurochs is the longhorn, is longhorn cattle. Yeah. Aurochs are <laughs> enormous. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they, we don't, they, we, don't, we, don't uh, we, we don't make cows that big anymore. Yeah. Well, the Nazis <laughs> tried apparently. Um, Did they? In, in, yeah, in my research on aurochs for while I was thinking about this, I discovered that the Nazis apparently tried to bring back the aurochs and basically all they made was really big, really angry cows. Um right. and not well, that's all. close, actually, from yeah. all that I understand. But, but they're, yeah. not, they're not actually genetically close to aurochs, right. and they're just right. they're just aggressive for no reason, right? right? It's not it's not like a like a wild beast. They're just right. irrationally angry just for mean. no reason, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and so, but it, anyway, um, but yeah, if now that same horn could be in Barahir's possession. When he comes down out of the out of the hills and mm -hmm. rescues Finrod, because we had right. talked about like what that kind of looks and sounds like, and the idea of because the elves fight in probably a pretty organized way, and I just imagine Baron here and his guys coming down out of the hills like banshees, and it actually terrifying the monstrous orcs right. on the other side. Right, the idea of the savagery of these human warriors coming down the hills, right. scaring the orcs, just that <laughs> feels so good to me. Right, um, and I thought about the the sound of you know, like the, you know, having them yelling and screaming as they're coming down the hills, but also blowing horns. I thought about the car carnix, uh, which is a terrifying sounding horn from uh, that was used by. Celtic warriors in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, you can't really make an actual one of those out of an actual horn, but we can just make it sound like that. Like <laughs> I, we have the technology; it's fine. It's fine. That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, so we're so th you're thinking about the horn uh, using Holith's horn as a, a, a kind of an. I mean, because we we already were talking about the. Uh, Andreth is already kind of loaded down with artifacts, right? Mm -hmm. You know, she's going to yes. have the yes. stole. She's not uh, carrying it, you know. No, yeah. but but we're basically putting a third, and you know, a, a, a third element in there, yeah. right? But this is this isn't carried. This isn't carried by the leader. This is carried by no. this is no. their, their mouthpiece, as you will, sure. right? Somebody sure. goes goes along. That Baron is blowing the horn, probably when when right. uh, when they come running down. The Right, right, um, and but it does it it does enable us to there to be a moment right when she gives it to somebody 
else because I mean it's 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 important. It's a gift, right? It was given to her. Um, mm-hmm. uh, of course, in in older societies, regifting is super important, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you do with gifts uh, in in large part. Um, at least I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking here primarily of Beowulf, right? And you get that's like the lineage of the gift that you give is this was right. you know this is this is. Uh, a great gift because it was given to me on a great occasion, you know, by somebody else uh, who received it in turn from um, anyway. So the the kind that kind of lineage, right? You know, it is it, you know for Andreth, it's it's not useful, right? She's not going to use a horn in that way. She's not going to be that kind of a figure, but she's taken it, right? And it's it's like one of the things that she has learned, and what one of the fruits of her trip is going to be her leading the people out and beginning to change their culture and beginning. And so her kind of handing it off um, to, does she hand it off to Bregolas or is she going to hand it off That's straight to Bar here? That's what I was just here? thinking, that, that is thinking that Bregolas has it as they're leaving, right? Right. As they're leaving the, the, um, Nargothron, he has it and he blows it as they're, as they're as, exiting. As they're leaving, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he can hand it off to Baron. um, like right before like in the early stages of episode 12 during the the dagger bragalock right right um note note to self what happens to it is it going to be is it going to be cloven when baron finds the camp and his father dead mm-hmm. or is it going to be good... something that baron takes with him I mean, it's probably huge. I don't imagine him like carrying it. Yeah, no, he can't carry. Yeah, it it would. It would be. We would. We would find a. We we would have a cloven horn moment, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think think so. I I mean, we'll we'll decide that in season six. But Mm. this is not something that's going to make it to Numenor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it can get destroyed. Um, It's got to be destroyed sooner or later. Um, I mean, Bregler's bow is supposed to make it all the way to Numenor, so. Something from this camp can survive, but if, right. if Baron walks away with one item from that camp, it's going to be Gregor's bow, not right. this random horn that we just invented. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes, good. Okay. Um, well, it's getting very late. Um, mm-hmm. It's getting very late. Um, Want to say a thing or two about? Finrod and his reaction? Or should we save that for next time, do you think? There's not too much to say. I think it's it's really yeah. interesting, you know, that the way that he receives it, I like that he explicitly draws the parallel to mm-hmm. the rebellion of the Noldor, right? Um, you know, that moment where he's like, look at me, not perpetuating the same problem <laughs> into the next generation, right? Is is kind of fun, right? Is a, a really sort of self-aware moment on Finrod's part there. Um, mm-hmm. But um, uh, but yeah, it, and, but I also thought that the way that they explained it to him, you know, um, um, they're the way that we, I mean, one of the things that I really liked about their conversations with Finrod is that we can see, although the whole premise of their conversation is we as a people cannot thrive, we are being prevented from fulfilling our own destinies, our own calling. We've lost our way and our purpose as a people as a consequence of this. Nevertheless, we can see the fruit of their um, time in Nargothrond as well, right? They understand Mm -hmm. 
Finrod and the elves very well, right? And they are in a place to be able to explain to him in his terms. Like, they're able to say, we understand why you did this. Like, and we know where the mistake came from, right? That what seemed to, you know, this, this has seemed to you just like a time for us to, to rest and gather ourselves, you know, in preparation for the next move. And yet, look, generations have gone by and our people have mm-hmm. changed. And that was, and that was the one thing, if there was one element missing from their discussion, it was change. Mm-hmm. A more overt reference to the, to the, to that primary theme that they, that that's one of the things that he doesn't calculate, right? That like they, we are not the same people who arrived here. Exactly. Yeah. Change has happened. Like the, the time, our time here has changed us in ways that you did not, could not guess, right? Yeah. Because change does not affect you in the same way, um, and it's time for us to change, to continue changing, right? It's time for us to embrace change uh, and to mm-hmm. change more uh, in this uh, in this other newer way. Um, yeah. So that that was one thing that I think would be kind of cool to to kind of link in because we need to show Finrod continuing to kind of wrestle with the whole change concept. Right. But again, but I, I thought I really liked their understanding. I don't know. And Andreth's understanding, um, uh, you know, his positive reception of it, but their, their comprehension of him, um, I thought was really, really telling. Cause again, like they've, they have gained in wisdom, like the, the people have been blessed by their time in Nargothrond and they are in a position which is different even from the house of Hador. Right. They Mm. these people know the elves better. They understand the elves better than any of the other Mm. people, even the House of Hadar. Right. They they work with the elves, but they don't Mm -hmm. get them in the same way. They're still kind of living in parallel with the elves rather than really, um, uh, you know, living uh, among them in the same way and and certainly understanding them like we see without an Elena and Endreth. So I I really like that. I thought that was cool. Look at Andreth and. Adenel mansplaining to the elves. That's <laughs> it's very nice. literally. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> they are <Yeah>. mansplaining. <laughs> yes, in, exactly. In, a, in an episode completely dominated by female characters. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> very true. Very true. And I hadn't even noticed that actually. That was something that never really struck me at any point until you mm-hmm. just mentioned it. Um, yeah. Yes, it's almost entirely dominated by, except for Aeol, basically. Aeol yeah. becomes like, an, you know, Ooh. Aeol and Maeglin become the, um, I mean, there, there are minor masculine figures like the horse guy and the young yeah. hunter. And Bregolas. Um, and Bregolas, right, who's the big, yeah. the, you know, the other, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the core elements of the whole story are, I don't know. Andreth and Haleth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome. Very neat. Excellent. Um, good. Well, that which all we have time for here. We didn't talk about we, but we kind of did talk about Bregolas. There's a little mm-hmm. bit more we could say, perhaps, about the teenagers and stuff, but um, we kind of touched on it. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, we're going to be and maybe we can come back and we'll probably talk about a little bit more in the context of moving on as the House of Beor begins to continue changing more as we move forward. Um, and we get the love affair between Andreth and Ignor. Um, uh, this has been one of those things that I am have been most curious to see how this would come about. Um, 
one of the most unusual love stories in Tolkien's world, right? The unhappy yeah. elf human romance, the only woman who has ever tried to marry up in all mm-hmm. of Tolkien's corpus, <laughs> right? And it doesn't go well. Um, guys marry up all the time, but, uh, uh, but uh, they don't marry down. And Don't they all, though, really? That seems to be the premise. <laughs> that seems to be the premise. Um, anyway, we'll get to look at this next time, and that's going to be really, really interesting to see because, it's I, I, again, this is a, a love story unique uh, in Tolkien's world, and I think that's... Uh, a pretty exciting opportunity uh, to discuss. So, and we get, we get, we get my Dracula scene that I've been waiting for. So uh, that's also going to be very cool. All right. So that is what we'll be doing next time. Next time, which will be Thursday, June 3rd at 10 PM Eastern time. Uh, So thanks everybody for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you live in two weeks. Or of course, if you're listening or watching this asynchronously after the fact, whenever it is that you get to it, maybe five minutes after now. Uh, but uh, I will say, as always, oh, sorry, one last thing I wanted to say before we go. You will have heard, of course, I, you know, we, we've not been looking at the text of the script because it's quite long. Um, but for those, of, you know, for those of you who haven't read it yet and are just sort of hearing our discussion of it, just wanted to invite you. You can find the scripts on the the forums. Uh, you know, it posted there online at forums.signumuniversity.org. Go to Silm uh, Film and then down into Scripts and Season 5, and you can find uh, this script and our other outlines and things. Um, so... Just wanted to make sure to draw people's attention to where they can find that to read that for themselves if you'd like to uh, read more of the script that we've just been discussing. So with that, I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.